I think along the way, one of the things I learned as well, another lesson I learned is don't compare your journey. Just don't compare. Because it's so easy for us, like now with social media, to be looking at other people or even other businesses and be like, oh, how come they got this? And oh, how come they got that? And how come I don't? And it's like, you know what? Just do your thing. Stay in your lane. Keep doing the good that you know is good. Just keep doing it. It may feel like no one notices or you're not getting anywhere, but believe me, you will. Welcome back to The Purpose Effect, the podcast about purpose-driven businesses and what we can learn about solving some of the world's biggest problems from the women who are solving them. I'm Elena Kersey, and I'm on a mission to learn how we can build better, better work, stronger communities, a healthier planet. If you believe there's a better world out there waiting for us, then this podcast is for you. Sassy by Kimis is the founder of Earth Air, a social enterprise that helps artisans from marginalized communities develop sustainable income streams by using their traditional craftsmanship to make beautiful bags and accessories. In doing so, Earth Air is also preserving traditional craftsmanship and techniques in Malaysia and beyond. The goal of Earth Air is actually to work themselves out of business. If artisans have the skills they need to access the markets for their products themselves, then they're no longer reliant on intermediaries. That's the impact that Earth Air is creating. They are almost like an incubator for Malaysian artisans. And they're also one of Malaysia's first B Corps and are fair trade certified. In our chat, Sasi is extremely honest about the struggle of starting and trying to grow a social enterprise. And to be honest, a lot of the struggles she's had are true for many of us who run businesses. It requires you to be a little bit flexible in how you define success. Grateful for how far you've come and proud of all of the things you've learned. So if you're in a place in your life or your work where you're doubting whether you've made the right decision, then I think this conversation will help you stay the course. And if you're contemplating stepping off course, then this conversation might give you the courage to do so. So let's get into our conversation with Sasibai Kimis, the founder of Earth Air. But before we do, I'm going to pour myself a hug in a mug with a cup of tea bird tea. I love tea bird tea, and not just because the packaging is absolutely beautiful, although it is, or because the tea is organic and comes in biodegradable tea bags, although it does, but because I love the way T-Bird Tea's founder, Ashley Cotterell, uses her business to support other businesses doing good. Ashley partners with brands and not-for-profits doing good for people and planet because she believes that this is how you build sustainable businesses. And I couldn't agree more. So if you want delicious, healthy, beautifully packaged tea that makes impact, you can get 20% off using the code HUGINAMUG20. I'd recommend the Earl Grey and Orange. It's my favorite. I was in my early 30s. I was single and I had some savings from my finance career. I returned home to Malaysia from London and, and I worked with Kazana. And I was thinking that, okay, if I did start a business now, maybe it's a good time because if I fail, I'm still youngish and I don't have like 
family and kids to support at this stage. So why not try it? So I was very excited. But then at the same time, like, how do you grow a business from scratch? I was working out of my bedroom and we had all like scarves and earth air products like in the living room of my family home. And my dad would come home from work and he'd be like, are we living in a warehouse? And then, and my dad at, in the beginning was not pleased as an Asian father because <laughs> he was like, why did you leave your job that was paying so highly? And now what? What are you doing with your time? And then the first year of Earth Air, he asked me like how much money we made. And you know, I think it was like less than 100,000 ringgit. And he was like, what is the point of this? Like you could have just worked at Kazana and donated part of your salary. And that would have been more than starting this business. You're wasting your talent. So the first three years, those things were niggling in my head. Am I really doing something that is the best use of my talents and something that is making the most impact with my time? Or should I be doing something else? We define a lot of who we are in society by what we do in a way. And that was hard for me. But then eventually in 2013, there was no one talking about social enterprises like what the social enterprise business model is in Malaysia. So a lot of my time was actually spent talking to clients, explaining to them like, no, we're not an NGO. We are a business, but we work with like communities that are in need and we help them with livelihoods. So we're not asking for donations from you. We're just saying, buy these beautiful products. And that in turn, you'll be helping those communities. The early years were hard. And then the first three years, I couldn't pay myself a salary. I was literally like loading all our stock into the car, going from pop-up to pop-up. It was exhausting. I was exhausted. I just felt like a car boot salesman, which is what I was doing. So what kept you going? How come you didn't give up? I specifically remember I wrote to my family and I said, look, guys, I don't think this is cutting it. It's not working. I'm going to get, I think I need to shut it down. Like, I just need to have a very realistic eye and be like, I did my best. I tried it. It didn't work. Shut it down and move on. But that was the time that I got the Eisenhower Fellowship, uh, which is a fellowship where you spend seven weeks in the U.S. meeting people in different industries, leaders, to help you in your mission. So when I went to the U.S. and I met with 24 other women from around the world who are leaders in their industries and their workspaces, and I got new ideas. I came back refreshed, and and I think that was like the point where things changed. So that year, we also won the British Council Social Enterprise Award. So a few things happened at the same time. We got funding to open up a retail, like a physical space. So that meant that I could move out of my bedroom and move all the stock out of my house into a space where pe- like I could invite people to come and be like, hey, this is what Earth Air does. This is who we are. These are our products. That was one. And then when I came back from the U.S., 
I realized that I should be looking at B2B in addition, because I was trying to do a lot of B2C, which was necessary because no one even knew what Earth Air was or what we were doing. But we had gotten to the point where, like, after three years, I was like, okay, we need to get, like, bulk orders. And that year, um, my old university, uh, Wharton, we, there was the Wharton Business Forum in KL that year. And they reached out to me and they were like, hey, can you make 400 bags, like woven bags for this forum? So I worked with one of our artisans, Katnelli. She passed away, but she was the first Malaysian artisan that I worked with. And she initially told me that she couldn't do it. She's like, Sassi, I'm one person. How am I going to weave 400 bags? Like we have three months. So I, I worked out with her like, this is what we're paying you. These are your material costs. This is how long it takes you to weave one bag. So you actually have a profit margin of almost 50%. You can then use that 50% and you can pay other people to weave it for you and you still make money. And then I realized that that income that she earned making with 400 bags, yeah. it gave her income for eight months of the year. And that year... I also met Xiao Cheng, uh, who is now a shareholder at Earth Air. She was literally Earth Air's first employee. And I remember when I wrote the check to pay her salary, and I was thinking like, oh dear, how am I going to manage this? Because for three years, I didn't have to pay anyone. I didn't pay myself either. Then I thought, okay, this is it. This is you know when things really hit the road, because now I have to see if the business is going to survive paying an employee and paying yeah. myself. I took a photo of myself with the first paycheck that I made to myself because it was such a momentous occasion for me to be like, I can pay myself a salary. What were the things that you did to the business model to try and prove that it could work on its own? How did you shift not just your mindset, yes, but also the way you constructed that business so that it could be sustainable? Okay, so the first three years of the business, it was me educating myself. I come from finance. I don't know anything about like how to start a retail or fashion business or design thing. I didn't even know what a line sheet was. I didn't know how to price our products. I didn't even know about brand or logo and marketing. I'm all of this I had to learn. And so the first three years, I traveled a lot. Traveled in Southeast Asia, uh, Cambodia, Thailand, Indonesia, um, Vietnam, and India. Because India is the world's largest producer of handmade artisanal products. And so I traveled to all these countries and I worked with different artisans. I learned about all the different techniques and different art forms and I learned about what other artisans struggling with, how can I help them. So early on, I came to realize that design is number one. No matter how like needy or worthy the cause is, if you don't have a well-made, well-designed product, no one's going to buy it. And then number two I realized that market access is what most artisans struggled with. So I was like, okay, so maybe there's a role for us here. 
we can be an ethical intermediary where we can design beautiful products, work with the artisans, get them made, and then we then build the market for these products. And that was also when I realized it was important to build a brand. It was important for us to build a credible, trustworthy brand that people could, you know, especially as a social enterprise, they could trust that what we are saying is what we do. So along the way, we started uh, giving price transparency or like breaking down the price so that customers could understand like where is the price that you're paying going to, you know, because that's what people used to ask a lot of the times. So then we got an, uh, we got fair trade certified, but then we got B Corp certified. So all of these things were like incrementally and organically done as we grew as a business and we learned more and we realized that, okay, these are all building blocks towards consumers having trust in us uh, and for us to share what we are doing in a transparent way so people know that we are doing what we are saying we are doing. How did you go about building the market? Uh, I guess one piece is that education. You build a market by people also trusting that the products that you're making are doing what they say you're they're doing. You're having the impact on these artisans and these uh, uh, communities that you say you're having. But how did you make them really desirable? How did you grow that? From a very layman point of view, I suppose I created products that I would like. I suppose the benefit that I had is that I've lived in New York, I've lived in London. So I thought, if I can think that Earth Air products can be placed in like a store in New York City or a store in London and that it would be admired and it would be valued highly. So I tried to have that as my bar. And so whenever we design products, I wanted the products to be very high quality. And then the second, you know, as I mentioned earlier, was about awareness and education. So in 2014, when, uh, I suppose 2013, yeah, is when the Rana Plaza collapse happened. Um, and yeah. 2014, I got in touch with uh, Carrie Summers of Fashion Revolution. And I messaged mm-hmm. them and I said, look, I want to bring the Fashion Revolution movement into Malaysia because I want people to understand why it's important for them to think about who are the humans behind the products that they buy? Because already then the whole eco movement and the green movement was gathering momentum, which was fantastic. But then I was like, I don't feel like people are considering the humans, the social side of things. We can't just have a, an environmentally friendly product, but not think about the people in the factories that are making these products. I brought in fashion revolution and then helping people understand why ethical fashion matters. And of course, along with this, we got more and more media coverage. We were featured in like radio stations, TV, press. And so I think all of this helped. So it helped create a market and it helped raise awareness 
about sustainability, about ethical products. And so we started getting more and more inquiries. And the thing is, like my desire personally has always not been about growing earth air for myself or what we do only. My vision has always been about if we don't grow the ecosystem, then everyone is going to fail. So it's not about me, Sassy Bai Kimis, or Earth Air growing, but it's about us working together with all the other social enterprises. Everyone else who's speaking for sustainability, all of us need to work together and realize that it's not a zero-sum game. So if you grow, I grow. So we're making the pie bigger for everybody. We've talked about sort of ethical fashion and making fashion sustainable, pricing fashion at the right level. But what about circularity? Is there anything that you're doing in that space? So from the Mm. beginning, sustainability has been a very key point in what we do. And when I started working with Cottonelli, I had a choice to make because artisans like Cottonelli were using plastic strips to make their bags. And a lot of their reason was because it's very hard to source for the natural fibers like rattan or bamboo and the natural fibers were getting harder and harder to go to the jungle and get or buy. So Mm -hmm. the women used the plastic strips as an alternative. So I was thinking like, oh dear, I want to help this community and I want to help Carnelli. But then they're making, they're using a raw material that could be harming the environment and it's not recycled. And what is happening, what is going to happen with these bags at the end of its useful life? So that was the only product that we had that was using non-biodegradable or non-recyclable materials at that point in time. So I had been searching until I met Sea Monkey Project. And funnily enough, I married co-founder of Sea Monkey Project. And now Carlos is my husband. That's amazing. So that's actually how we met because I saw them at uh, a social enterprise event. And I went up to them and I was like, hey, guys. I have this bag and it's made out of plastic and it stresses me out that it's made out of plastic. Can you please help me figure out how to recycle this bag into something that is usable so it doesn't go into the Mm -hmm. landfill? And that's how it started. So now we work with Sea Monkey Project and all of our Penan bags that are no longer usable and we highly encourage our clients to return the bags to us. And we are working with the Hive and Helping Hand Penan. Um, so any Penan bags that are no longer usable, please don't throw them away. Return it to us. Even if they're not yours? Yeah, even if they're not ours. Yeah, absolutely. Any bag that this, you made out of these plastic recycling strips, we will take them. And we then pay Sea Monkey Project to make them into new products so we can make things like pots, rulers, fridge magnets, combs. So at least it's reused in a functional way and it doesn't go into landfills. So this was closing the loop for me on earth air products because these bags were used to stress me out because it was like, do I help the women 
Because if I don't buy the bags or I don't design the bags with them and we don't purchase them, they don't get an income. I had to balance the human and the, the social side with the environmental side. And so I decided to do the social side first, and then I found a way to solve the environmental side in time. It feels like we're at this moment where we have to rethink the way we've designed everything, um, the way we produce everything from our food systems to our consumer goods, to the way we travel, to the way we build businesses. In order to create the impact and to make all businesses circular, we have to rethink the way we've been making everything. As someone who's worked in many other kinds of businesses, both pre-Earth Air and also now, has your work with Earth Air kind of changed the way you do business in other areas? Absolutely. And Earth Air has changed my life. I didn't think... Found your husband. Yeah. <laughs> I found my husband. Um, and also it is... It's, it became something that I didn't expect it to. Because as I started growing Earth Air and then I became an entrepreneur, I, I didn't have a social media presence really before I started Earth Air because I... I'm pretty private and I didn't, I, I don't really post very much. But then I started realizing that, oh, okay, wait, you're an entrepreneur now. You represent something, you stand for something. And if you want to grow this cause and help people be more aware about all, why all of this matters, you need to speak out and you need to develop a presence. And that was hard for me. Always remember where you came from and why you started this and why you're doing it for, and make sure you remain humble. Because don't let things get to your head. And I think that is something for all entrepreneurs as your business grows and more and more people know about you and you go for events and people are like, oh yeah, I know you or I heard about you or I bought your products or whatever. It's like, you're like, oh, that's very kind and it's very nice. And you have to make sure that you don't become like conceited, if that makes sense. Um, and so I had to remind myself many times along the journey as well that this is about Earth Air and the people that we're helping. It's not about me. And now, like, 10 years later, uh, with Earth Air, it has taught me so much. I have grown so much in terms of... Uh, my own personal character because the person that I was when I left my corporate job is very different from the person that I am now, you know, as an entrepreneur or as a social entrepreneur, you have to mentally prepare yourself that there is a reality bite side to it, that your lifestyle has to change. And, and of course that took time as well for me. And I think it does for every entrepreneur or every social entrepreneur, because you have to, you get used to different ways of living and different things that you can afford, you know, because before I could go to a holiday anywhere I wanted. Now I get to travel when people pay me to speak, you know what I mean? So I was like, yeah, there are things that I lost, but there are things that I gained in different ways. And the things that I lost came back to me in different ways. So I may not be able to afford the same trips that I was able to do before, but 
I get to experience new countries and holidays in a different way because of what I'm doing at Earth Day. Do you have any ideas on ways that we can level the playing field a little bit more? I mean, for social business. Do you have any ideas on how we can direct wealth more responsibly? I suppose in the social enterprise space, one of the things that I've been preaching to all the different agencies that have been looking at social enterprises was actually market access to social enterprises. You know, because being in this space, there are so many beautiful products that I see different NGOs and social enterprises and community civil society organizations like making, but nobody knows about them. So that's why I've taken matters into my own hands and I'm like, I'm going to do it, you know? So we're going to do the store. So in a way that one is awareness, right? Number two, at the policy side, one of the things that we've been pushing for is social procurement, you know, because Hmm. if the government can include in their procurement. And it was announced in several budgets during Prime Minister Najib's time. It was announced by the Guzafrol uh, when he was Minister of Finance, but that there is going to be social procurement where government agencies and ministries would have to procure from social enterprises. And then there was also, it was also what was also mooted was to give social enterprises like a tax break. Because sometimes I'm like, hey, like a solar panel company gets tax breaks for 10 years. And I find, I know they're investing billions in the country, but what about us? We're also helping communities and, and, and marginalized peoples in Malaysia that the government is not able to help necessarily. So we're helping them. So we are providing a service as well. So giving us a tax break will help. So that what we are working on on the policy side to like, you know, because social enterprises, we don't want free money. We're not asking for grants. We just want people to buy our products because the more that people buy our products, the more sales we make and the more artisans and refugees and communities we can help. So we're actually just asking for people to buy. So the next step is also like we've been working with a couple of other social enterprises we want to like work with Bursa, like get companies to satisfy their ESG where their S, the social side of their ESG, they can fulfill part of that by buying from social enterprises and working with social enterprises. So this is how I feel like we can redistribute things and we can scale and help social enterprises grow. Do you measure the impact? You're a B Corp, so I, I, I guess you must have to. But do you measure the impact that Earth Air is making on the communities you work with? And can you share a little bit about what that's been to date? Sure. So this is one of the things that I used to struggle with because when we were a small team, or in fact, when I was alone, like when I spoke to impact investors, they're like, oh, you need to measure impact. And I was like, oh, so you want me to measure my impact or do you want me to run my business and make it operational and actually successful? So in the early years, like we didn't, we weren't able to measure much else other than how much money we have contributed uh, to the artisans. But 
we worked with a fellow from the US. He sat down with us and he was like, look, let me think through. Let's really look at what is your impact. And we then realized that our impact is not about just how much we're buying from artisans. Our earth as impact is how much training and independence we are creating for the artisans that we work with. So we started measuring our training hours and the time that we spend with the artisans because our vision as a business has been to no longer exist one day. Because if we can help train the artisans that we work with on how to price their products, how to design good products, how to develop proper production systems when they get a large order, and they can communicate with clients directly, they don't need Arthur anymore. So part of what we train our artisans to do is all of these things. So when we work with a new artisan group or we make a new product, it takes us between six months to like sometimes one year to two years to train the artisan. Like when I first worked with Katnelli, she hung up on me. She's, she has shouted at me. She has stopped talking to me. It was almost like a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Like I would then <laughs> she would stop talking to me and I'd be like, I'll call her and be like, Katnelli, uh, please talk to me. Please answer my messages. Because she was pissed at me. Because I would tell her, I'd be like, Kat, this bag that you've just made is not good enough. The drawing I gave you says this side should be 10 cm, but your bag is 8 cm. I cannot sell this bag. So part of that was actually teaching the artisans that they need to make consistent quality products. And like just helping them understand that took a long time. And so building that, took a long time, like training all the artisans and the communities that we work with to realize that they can't just make whatever they feel like and expect us to sell it. We're creating a, a product line, and so the product has to be somewhat consistent. People are expecting the bag to look pretty similar. And to do that, we need our artisans to understand that and be able to produce. So we had to teach them how to create tools and materials to be able to produce more consistent designs. And so all of this took years, you know, and to me, that is our impact. The fact that, you know, before Katnelli passed away, she had her own shop that had grown. She had trained her daughter. She had trained all her relatives. And now, like, even though she's no longer here, her daughter and her sister are running the business and it's still going strong and it's still feeding their family. So we don't always have the means to be able to measure the exact impact of all of that, but we do try and portray the stories as much as we can of how it has changed the lives of the communities that we work with. That is our real impact as a business is that we can train and help our artisans so that they can fly away from us. And the more that fly away from us and the more independent they get, the more that means we have been successful in what we're doing.
it's a really interesting way to measure it. And I think such an important point, but also a very different way of doing business. The fact that actually your goal is to work yourself out of the business uh, because that's where the true impact lies. I want to move on to some of the lessons of this journey for you. Um, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs, not just social entrepreneurs, but all kinds of entrepreneurs, maybe particularly female ones, come to you for advice. Is there something that you can tell them? Oh, now that I, I, Carlos and I got married in September last year and... Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I, I'll just say it, I'm 44. So I got married when I was 43. And on a personal, I was just actually talking to my sisters about this morning that the 10 years of running Earth Air, there was a struggle inside me. My personal life was not where I wanted it to be because I have always dreamt of having a family and having children. And but Earth Air professionally on the outside was like doing well and people would come up to me and be like, oh, Earth Air is doing so well. I see you in the magazine. Congratulations. And I would smile. But on the inside, I was struggling <laughs> because yeah. I, I really wanted to settle down. And I never thought that, you know, when I got to age 39, I got panicked and I actually went to freeze my eggs because I was like, oh, wait, I still haven't met anyone yet. So one of the things I've started doing now is speaking to my female friends and women that may follow me on social media or whatever and encouraging them to freeze their egg. It is expensive, I feel, um, but it is an investment that you're making for many years in the future. I was speaking to a number of my friends who are like, you know, 34, 35 or early 30s and they are lawyers, they are successful entrepreneurs and, and they were telling me like, oh, I'm too busy, I'm running my business, I don't have time. And I was like, hey, that's where I was too and I'm telling you from where I am now, learn from my mistakes. Freeze your eggs earlier because the quality of your eggs will be much better. And and now I'm uh, going through like the IVF process. And I suppose my advice to women would be like, yes, we want to be like, I suppose, like men and be like killer entrepreneurs or whatever. But you also have to recognize that we are women. And if you know you don't want to have a child, that's great. But if you do want to, you do want to have a child or you're thinking of a family in the future, Think about it now and invest in it in the same way that you would invest in your career. I hear that advice often. My mother gave me the same advice. She didn't need to worry about me specifically because I have two children. I was 31 when they were born. But it does speak to the fact that the messaging that I had when I grew up was that women can have it all. We're at this point where we can have it all, but we can't all at the same time. And yes, I have a wonderful husband and beautiful family. And I'm thankful for that every day. But to have that, I took quite a big step back career-wise. And I'm only now kind of jumping back in and starting my own business. 
And that's hard as well. It also creates an identity crisis. So thank you for sharing that because I think it's important that we talk about the fact that what you see on the outside can be very different from what's going on, you know, in the home, internally, how we're feeling about things. And that success doesn't mean having all of these things successful professionally, you know, married with a beautiful family, children, all by the Mm -hmm. age of 35. Absolutely. If you plan for it and you invest in it, you can have all of those things, but not necessarily at the same time and maybe not in the way you pictured. Absolutely. It's also, I guess, about encouraging that flexibility. Yes. I mean, and I suppose in my own journey of, of sort of meeting my husband, you know, like, you know, when you're younger, in your 20s, in your 30s, I mean, you have this sort of like image or vision of like the kind of partner or man that you want. And now <laughs> I look back at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was so shallow. And possibly as in, it's probably age and and I think starting out there and then like, I think, you know, my dad passed away in 2019 and that that was a turning point in my life as well. It's switched something in me because I realized that, hey, the people that you love, you don't know how long they're going to be with you. So you better appreciate every moment that you have with them. And, and that, I think it's after my dad passed away that I remember like, I mean, I, I pray. And so I was praying and I asked God and I said, Help me to meet a kind man. I said, I just want one thing. I just want him to be (laughs) kind. And so that was what I was looking for. And in the end, you know, I met someone that is a fellow social entrepreneur, is kind, intelligent, and everything that I had hoped for. But if I had my original sort of criteria of looking for a husband, I would have never met Carlos. I think along the way, one of the things I learned as well, another lesson I learned is don't compare your journey. Just don't compare. Because it's so easy for us, like now with social media, to be looking at other people or even other businesses and be like, oh, how come they got this? And oh, how come they got that? And how come I don't? And it's like, you know what? Just do your thing. Stay in your lane. Keep doing the good that you know is good. Just keep doing it. It may feel like no one notices or you're not getting anywhere, but believe me, you will. And when you look back, you will see that all the good that you did has ended up with something that you never expected. I don't think success comes in that cookie cutter form anymore. And I think everybody defines success differently for themselves. And I think that's what it should be. As long as you are happy and fulfilled and satisfied with what you're doing and it's not what society thinks is success, who cares? You know, it's yours to own. I also think you made this point about how even if nobody sees what you're doing, keep doing it. Because these things, all of these dots of your lives, when you look backwards, you see how they're all connected, even though when you're in the thick of it, you're not sure, you feel like maybe you should give up, maybe this is not the best use of your talents. 
But when you look back, that every step you take kind of prepared you for the next one exactly. and the next one. It, it only makes sense in hindsight. And so as these dots kind of line up for you, what's the next step for Earth Air? This year, I'm so excited that in our 10th year, we are going to make earthair.com a website as a one-stop shop for social enterprise and impact products made in Malaysia. So it's not going to be just products from Earth Air. It's going to be products from Danoti, from Asli, from many different social enterprises and NGOs and artisans and refugees in Malaysia. Um, and we're going to start with a retail shop, uh, which we are co-developing with Sea Monkey Project. So we're hoping to move there in July. It's a 7,500 square feet space where Earth Air is going to have our retail shop. Sea Monkey is going to have their plastic recycling workshop. And we're going to have a sustainability education space. So we want it to be a hub where people can come and learn about social enterprises, um, about impact products, about sustainability and why all of this matters. So we want it to be a, like a, a hub for sustainability and impact product, uh, impact education. That's awesome. Not just for consumers, right? It's also, I think, a really interesting initiative for this next wave of entrepreneurs and professionals who are going to work in this space and, and really professionalize it. Exactly. With all of these lessons that you've learned, do you have, and, and now that you've kind of arrived at like another turning point, I suppose, where you're reevaluating, what are the hopes for the next phase? Not just for, your, for you personally, but also for the way this social enterprise ecosystem will develop. <laughs> Yesterday, someone laughed at me. They were like, oh, you say you want to work on your personal life and start a family, but here you are now moving into a new place and setting up a new retail shop. So I guess, I guess as entrepreneurs, you kind of, you can't really settle down. You know, you're always looking for like, oh, how else or what else can we do to grow this? And that's what it is. You know, it's like, I feel passionate about this space. I feel, I feel like this is my purpose, you know, that my purpose is this and therefore it doesn't matter how much or how little I'm earning or what's going on in my life. I still want to be involved. It's like my baby and it's what I love doing. You know, obviously personally, I, I'd like to, I mean, I, I have children. I have a daughter and a son from my uh, husband if we don't have our own child, I'm very happy with my life, um, you know. So that's on the personal front. And on the business side, I'm really excited to sort of like what I feel is like a linchpin, linchpin moment for, for me and for Earth Air and to be able to like bring together everybody in the ecosystem in one place. I mean, of course, it's not going to be everybody because we, we only have so much space. So we're going to try and represent as many brands and social enterprises um, and impact products as we can. Um, you know, but my dream is like earthair.com, you know, because there we're not limited by the amount of space we have. 
that it can become like a one-stop shop for social enterprises and amazing cause products and brands to meet new clients, to grow their market that, you know, one day they may not need us anymore, you know, and for consumers that they can find the products that they want to buy in one space rather than having to go to like multiple websites and buy separately. So I suppose in a way like that's sort of like our next stage of being the ecosystem um, builder for market access. Before we wrap things up, I just want to ask, is there anything else about earthair.com, the retail space or the website that you want to talk about or promote? Or is there a launch date coming up that you want to shout about? Um, well, we're, we just got the keys last week to the space, so we're still working on it. But um, we're hoping to sort of uh, move in first week of July, which is not far away. And um, and hopefully do like a soft launch in July. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited because the space is also very exciting because where we are next to Central Market, there's a revitalization and revival in that whole downtown KL area. Um, it's almost like what happened in Georgetown and Penang is happening in KL and you know, so I'm also very excited to be working in that part of town and all of the like collaborations and partnerships that we will be able to develop. And, you know, I really hope that the space becomes a space where even marginalized communities can come and use the space and social enterprises in Malaysia can come and do workshops and talks and they can do trainings there. So it's, it can really become um, a hub um, for people to learn and meet with people who are doing good in this world. I'm very excited to see it when it opens. Thank you so much for your time, Sassy. I really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for being so honest, you know, like really refreshingly honest about the challenges, but also what the successes feel like. Sure. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Alina. I was actually feeling a little bit stuck when I had this conversation with Sassy. I was trying to work through a challenge around pricing with my podcast agency business. So if you're a pricing strategist or you work in an agency, I'd love to hear from you. Um, But I was really doubting if I had what it takes to make this business succeed. And this conversation with Sassi really reframed my perspective. It allowed me to think of this challenge as just that, just something I had to work through, not an indication of failure, not an indication that it's never going to work. So I hope that it helps you to reframe difficult moments in your own life too. Next week, I'll be talking to Becky Fox, a sustainable business mentor who started a million-dollar purpose-led business at the tender age of 25 with absolutely no money. (laughs) We're talking about how you can build businesses that make money and do good too. So you'll hear from me then. Bye.